Good morning. I am I'm so happy to be here this morning. I if I lived closer this this would be my church. Um, I I love this place and I love your pastors and I also feel very very lucky to have Aurelia for a friend. I'm also excited to be um, closing out this series and talking about our relationship with the self. So in Jungian psychology, the word self refers to the unification of the conscious and the unconscious within a person. Or in other words, the self is sort of like the integration of the various parts of your psyche. To bring this a little more down to earth, how many of you have seen the Pixar movie Inside Out? Where all of the emotions inside the child are these individual characters in her brain. So there's like red-faced anger and green-faced disgust. And then there's this bright blue-haired, yellow dress joy. So in Jungian psychology, you might say the self is sort of like the container that holds all these various characters who are running around with their own separate agendas. Not just our emotions, but all of the different forces at work within us. And often these characters are running pell-mell through our psyche, pulling our strings, and we just sort of react automatically to their tugging with little to no awareness about what we are doing or why we are doing it. But if we become acquainted with these various forces at play within us, then gradually, instead of them controlling us, we can interact intentionally, and this is what makes change and growth possible. So this is what I want to talk to you about today, what Carl Jung called individuation, what a therapist might call inner work or a spiritual director might call soul work. It's what I think the psalmist is encouraging when he says, you desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. But trying to describe this process can be a bit esoteric. So I want to get at it today with story part of my own story and learning how to relate to myself. So back in 2012, I went through a period of spiritual awakening, and I distinctly remember writing down a single question in my journal. Who am I really? And to my alarm, I realized it wasn't remotely easy to answer. I had nothing concrete to say about myself. I mean, I could say that I was a pastor, a daughter, a wife, etc. I could name all these external roles that I play. But as for the deeper essence of what makes Kindle Kindle, I couldn't really begin to tell you. I was essentially a mystery to myself, and this struck me as a less than optimal way to live. And thus, I began my quest to know myself. For example, I spent most of my life blind to my emotions. But to begin this journey of self-discovery requires honesty. The psalmist writes, you desire truth in the inward being. But frankly, many people don't ever get that far. We prefer self-deception, self-delusion, and self-avoidance. 
We don't want to see ourselves in totality, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It is far easier to go about life doing stuff without reflecting on why we do what we do. The first step to knowing yourself is a willingness to let the blinders come down. And as I said, for me, I'd spent a lot of my life blind to my emotions. Somewhere early in life, I picked up the message that I wasn't allowed to feel, especially if those feelings were negative. I had to unlearn that early conditioning. This took me years, and it's really still an ongoing process. But here are some of the examples of how it happened. For starters, I go to therapy, which honestly, I believe everyone should do. Therapy is not for people who are failing or marriages that are failing. Therapy is for people who are clever enough to be learners rather than delusionally self-sufficient. Smart people do therapy. Aware people do therapy. Emotionally intelligent people do therapy. Don't make the mistake of thinking therapy is for people who are less put together than you. No one is put together. We're all a mess. But for me, it wasn't just therapy. There's many things. For example, I wrote letters. I began to write letters to my emotions. Dear rage, dear sorrow, dear hope. Sometimes to help me release my emotions, I would express my feelings on a sheet of paper knowing that I was going to tear it up and throw it away afterwards. And that is when this good little Baptist first learned to cuss. <laughs> True. <laughs> I also learned the importance of enacting my emotions bodily. I would go outside and throw things, or I would stay inside and punch my pillow, etc. Gradually, I came to accept that it was not only okay, but good to cry. I still have trouble sometimes crying, but now when the tears do come, instead of being embarrassed, I know to say thank you. As I began to get in touch with my own emotions, I learned that they had messages for me. They were there to alert me to things that I might otherwise avoid knowing. The trick was learning to let each emotion have a seat at the table and a voice in the conversation. Poetry helped me with this, both reading it and writing it. Other art forms may work better for you, but for me it was poetry. Maybe most significantly was the poem Guest House by Rumi, which I still quote frequently. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a meanness, a depression, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. I took Rumi's advice and even rage into my life. Which of all the emotions was the one I was definitely not allowed to feel as a woman? But it wasn't working for me to keep rage silent, and so I wrote to her. And to my surprise, this is what I wrote. 
rage. You fill my rooms like a nosy house guest, taking up space with large hips and sharp tongue. I think you a nuisance until I notice you are on a war path, purging my house of all the silly doilies, niceties that keep me docile. You are making such a ruckus, murdering off my petticoats. What will the neighbors think? Frantic cookies to cover the stench of carnage, my pretty things now white-faced corpses, my darling hats rotting into skulls. Good God, what would the church ladies say if they stopped for tea just now? I run behind you with a mop, but it is no use. It's all a wreck. Even the one box of bones I knew I had hidden in the corner you've placed on the mantle like an arrangement of trophies. I tried to sweet-talk you into being calm. You tell me in clear terms, this is no time for calm. I am always calm, I shout. Why do you think I came, you whisper. Where did you even come from, I inquire. You cackle. You came from the backyard, where I buried you. I gasp, I blush, I did no such thing. But in the recesses of my memory, I can feel the weight of your large body as I hauled you in the secret night and dug a grave, then washed my hands and served up scones in the morning. Good Lord, I stared down at my hands in shock as if seeing them for the first time. I forgive you, you say. I look at your eyes and realize you did not come here to make me angry. I am already angry. You came to unlock my energy. Rage, you did not come to make me violent against my enemies. You came to kill off in me all the proprieties that keep me shackled. You came to get rid of the reservations that prohibit the sanest part of me from using her voice. You came to stop me from assassinating the truth that lives inside me. You did not come to make me bitter and hateful. You came to take my hand and restore my home. What I was, thank you for the snaps. <laughs> what I was doing in listening to some of my emotions for the first time and interacting with them imaginatively is that I was allowing my unconscious material into the light. It wasn't that I had no capacity for anger before I wrote that. It was that I kept my anger so far buried that I wasn't conscious of it. You see the difference? Like I said at the beginning, your unconscious material acts out in all sorts of ways, but as long as conscious, you aren't aware of what you're doing or why, and therefore you remain severely limited. You aren't free to make different choices because you don't know how. So for example, you're angry with your father, but since it's unconscious, you take that rage out on your kids and have no idea why a second cup of spilled apple juice caused you to lose your temper quite so dramatically. Or you've never grieved the loss of your marriage or the loss of your dream job, and now you, have, you don't know why you have so much anxiety. Or you've never acknowledged how traumatizing that thing that happened to you was, and 10 years later you can't explain why you wake up each morning depressed. What we do not bring into the light cannot be healed, cannot be successfully integrated into the wider truth of who we are, and thus what remains hidden becomes neurosis, addiction, obsession, or angst. 
at its best, I think the Christian practice of confession gets at this problem. By bringing our guilt into God's light, we open ourselves to healing. But too often, confession is misused as a tool to manufacture guilt, rather than a grace-filled means of bringing it into the light without fear. True confession can also be a means of owning our light. Confession is an act of truth-telling about ourselves, whether the truth we need to tell is that we are bitter and resentful or that we are harboring a talent or passion that we've been hiding. The truth may be that we have a really big idea that we haven't let out yet, or the truth may be that we are lonely or wounded or in love or desperate or excited or gay or questioning or somewhat Buddhist on the inside or not so Christian anymore. The truth is the truth, whatever it is, and covering it up might make life easier, but it doesn't make life any richer. And chances are it's not even that easy to keep hiding. Hiding is only easy in that it's what we're used to and it doesn't require us to change. But there are costs to hiding. The people we love most only receive a half alive fraction of who we really are. We lack access to our full potential. And most of the time, we aren't even happy. It's painful keeping the truth of you submerged. Over the past year and a half, I've been studying and training to be a certified spiritual director, which is a little bit like a therapist for the soul or for the spiritual journey. And part of what I have been learning is how to interpret dreams. Seriously. Like those weird dreams you have where you're flying through the air or your teeth fall out or you're late to class. I've been learning how these dreams we have at night that seem so ridiculous by the day are actually windows into unconscious material. This is not as crazy as it sounds. In fact, it makes some sense when you think about it that when we sleep, we aren't conscious, which gives the unconscious time to rise to the surface. But because it's the unconscious, it has to speak to us in the only way it can, through symbol and image and story. So I'll give you an example, okay, from my own life. While I was away for one of my spiritual direction intensives, one night I had a very disturbing dream. In the dream was a young man who was a star football player at his high school. But he had contracted a rare and debilitating disease that was slowly eating away at his muscular function. And it was getting so bad that the star athlete could barely even run anymore. And in the dream, I was watching the scene like an outsider. And this boy is in his backyard with his girlfriend who is cheering him on as he desperately tries to run again. He starts to run, but his feet won't cooperate. And before you know, he is tripping over himself, smacking his face on a chain link fence as he tumbles to the ground. The girlfriend emits a loud sob as, as he falls. And slowly he picks himself up and stumbles his way across the yard back to his grieving girlfriend. He reaches out his arms to comfort her and she falls into him but then she slumps suddenly to the ground 
and I realize she is dead. He has stabbed her with a knife and killed her. I wake up from this dream and I think to myself, what the heck is wrong with my brain <laughs> that I dreamt up this story? And the next morning, the dream continues to haunt me, and I've just been learning about dreams and how they carry messages for us, but I cannot fathom what sort of message my graphic homicidal dream could possibly have for sweet little innocent me. So I decide to confide in one of my instructors, admitting that I had a very disturbing dream last night. He looks excited. <laughs> disturbing dreams are the best ones, he says. I feel skeptical, but together we began to work the dream despite my doubts. By the end, my mind is teeming with real-life connections. For me, the teenage football player represented the arenas where I had been successful in life so far. But something was happening to my soul, and I couldn't keep living my old life. All the effort to keep doing the same old stuff made me feel like I was being eaten alive. Or to put it more plainly, I knew I needed to quit my job. At first, this was terrifying, and I tried to will myself to be the old me. But when I tried, I ran into a fence, into a barrier. My soul was saying no more. The girlfriend in the dream represented the part of me that was grieving this loss and could not accept what was happening. She needed me to be a star athlete. The athlete in me took a very decisive, though unexpected, action. The athlete decided this girlfriend energy needed to die. That is, this part of me that was pushing me to stay and succeed in the same ways as always, that to quiet down in order to let something new emerge. The atrophy of my muscles wasn't so much a curse as it was a push in a new direction. It was a warning bell that I couldn't keep pushing myself in the same way and get the same results. But if I listened to the girlfriend, the atrophy was all bad with no good to be had. And so, I had to shut her up. As it turns out, the violence in my dream wasn't so violent. It was a metaphor about stopping the side of me that was doing violence to myself by forcing me to stay the same. The girlfriend in the dream appears to be supportive, but in reality, she is keeping the boy from listening to his body, accepting his new fate, and learning a new way to be himself in the world. This bizarre <laughs> dream that appeared so disturbing on the surface was carrying within it an important message for my actual life. There are so many ways to access and bring into light the unconscious material that is work at work in our lives. We can study dreams. We can interact with our darker emotions. We can engage poetry and art. We can learn the Enneagram. We can work with a spiritual director, etc. It's not so important how you do the work. It's important that you do it. Now, I recognize that this sermon was a lot of talking about myself, but seeing as how the topic was self, <laughs> hopefully you didn't mind. Uh, in listening to part of my story, maybe you will be inspired to continue your own journey of self-discovery. Carl Jung said, 
the self might equally be called the God within us. If he's right, if the self is in fact a place where God dwells, then this quest to know and understand the self isn't just some narcissistic indulgence. It's also the quest to know God. I don't think Jung is saying the self is God. He is suggesting that the self is a place where we come to know God most intimately. God desires truth in the inward being, the psalmist declares. And so may this be our prayer. God, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Grant me the courage to see myself honestly, to bring the hidden things into light. Amen.